Hello and welcome to Careers Talk. I'm Kerry Eustace. So I suppose you've all had the obligatory office chats about how nice the sunshine has been, how warm it is, how it's I never know what to wear weather. The weather may be hotting up, but in the jobs world, there's been a freeze. I think almost all of the employment impact will be by not recruiting people as posts become vacant. So, so we've got, we got a recruitment losses. freeze yeah, So in places like the civil service. George Osborne on BBC News there. And yes, this week's big story was the civil service recruitment freeze unveiled in the Chancellor's £6.25 billion spending cuts. Later in the pod, we'll be asking two guests from Newcastle Business School, Northumbria University, what impact the freeze could have and where those shut out of the civil service might now find work. Plus, I'm pleased to announce we'll have the return of the rant room. Our readers have been sounding off about the 2-1 minimum. A job's top 10 with an international flavour and we have a topical tip from Julian on how to cope with a bulging workload, something civil servants may have to get used to. But we'll get to that story later in the pod. First, there are plenty of other headlines to talk about and we've picked out some that caught our eye this week. Harriet Minter and Ali White are here to share their top stories with us. Hi, you both. Hello. Good to have you here. Okay, so Harriet, do you want to kick off? What story have you picked out? Okay, I'll start... I've actually picked out um, two this week which go together and they are on the joy of social networking at work. And the first one is kind of looking at how social networking can really help you. And it is a new system that has been set up for the HR community within the public sector and it allows them to post on forums, to send um, direct messages to their counterparts in other councils around the UK. And actually they've also now opened it up so as well as the UK you get Australia, New Zealand, Dubai and Canada. And the idea of it is to create a network where they can discuss um, how to cut spending, look at any improvements that can be made in their work, and it's called the Efficiency Exchange, which I think kind of sets out what it's supposed to do. And then on the other side of that, we've also found out this week, according to myjob.co.uk, that four in ten UK employees have criticised their workplace on things like Facebook and Twitter. Mm. But then on the other side of the coin, 60% of those people they asked thought that if you did criticise your employer on Facebook, you should probably be censured for it. Oh, yeah, okay. so you think you're going to get into trouble. And this goes on, I think it's a pretty popular topic about what you should and shouldn't say on the internet mm. and how much of yourself you should give away. And I know one great example of this was a um, very popular US blog called Two Birds, One Blog which is about um, two people who worked in the same place and they wrote about their day-to-day office lives. And they built up a really big readership. And one day it got out who they were and it got back to one of the girl's boss. Uh-oh. And so <laughs> she found herself being hauled into a meeting to discuss exactly what she'd written on this blog and why she'd written it. And as she was doing it, she actually kept a live blog, oh, no, basically updating her firing oh. <laughs> throughout the system. Um, but she lost her yeah. job. She lost her job because of it. Oh. So you have to be really careful. Excellent. Well, we are speaking about employees and what they think of where they work. It looks like Microsoft employees have got reason to be very cheerful because the company has been named the best large workplace in Europe for the third year in a row. It's interesting because both the company and the Great Places to Work Institute, who complete this annual survey of the best places to work in Europe, have said the technology is actually the key to happy employees at Microsoft. Computers that work. Computers that work, yeah. (laughs) IT that call you back. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because they say, um, you know, there's been investment in training and using the latest technologies actually transformed the way they work. Um, 
And included in this really is development into more flexible work schemes and new ways of collaborating with others. And the Institute has actually said things which open up new opportunities to um, are actually highly appreciated by employees. So. I think that's really true. I also think um, what you're saying about working with people who want to collaborate and work with you mm-hmm. just shows actually how important HR and recruitment is. Yeah. Because if you recruit people who have a similar mindset to those who already work with your company, they're mm-hmm. obviously going to fit in better enjoy it more and create a better product at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's an increasing yeah. emphasis, I think, on cultural fit. Lots mm. of surveys sort of reporting it. And there was a recent survey into stress, I think, by mind. And whether you had a good cultural fit has a massive impact on how you feel about your job and how stressed you are. Um, and another thing, if, if you're not feeling happy with your job, another thing we have on the forum quite a lot and our experts point out is if you're thinking about changing career, well, I hate my job, I hate my managers, rather than jumping into a different sector to maybe assess if it is actually your workplace that's having an impact on the way you feel so would you be suited in a bit more a more relaxed environment you know somewhere where, like google where they have like games rooms and places you can take time out away from your desk rather than some, some something more structured yeah so i think it's something we'll see a lot more emphasis on okay um one of the stories that i've picked out is another thing relating to the spending cuts this week and this is uh the future jobs fund being scrapped and this was one of labor's flagship initiatives to help young people give them opportunities in workplaces so they were like short term, I think it's six months within quite top employers. So there was opportunities with the NHS and local authorities, museums and cultural organisations. And they could apply for funding to take these people on so they could pay them and really great opportunities. And that's being ditched. It's like being frozen. So the people who are already on the scheme can continue, but no one else can apply for funding now. And I'm really sad to see the back of this because it's such a good opportunity to get the the group, you know, the neats, the not in education or employment or training sure. group into the workplace if they're struggling. And and now it's gone. And I think it provided a really nice opportunity to actually learn on the job because I know they did a lot with the housing sector. Mm. And, yeah, um, that's right. So it was always like kind of a circle where the housing sector would take on these apprentices essentially to learn how to build houses they would go off and build houses which would then be sold and put money back into the community and they were creating their own community and also at the same time being paid for it yeah there was a big community focus yeah Yeah. so people who uh, organizations that were benefiting the community were more yeah. open to the funding but what's also interesting this week is the new work and pensions secretary it's Ian Duncan Smith has put his priorities forward about welfare so sort of getting people who are parked on benefits back into work so mm-hmm. they've ditched the future jobs fund but they've made this their priority and although they're saying young people are really important in that and that the work program is going to involve them the work program is going to be their new strategy for employment I'm sort of hoping that they'll factor the needs into that with a similar yeah. scheme because it was it was just such a valuable uh, experience and way to get people into top organizations that perhaps you couldn't otherwise get into or you wouldn't have got paid to do <laughs> yeah. so yeah apprenticeships right. are really important well it's quite interesting because it was a key Tory pledge in the run-up to the yeah. election was actually streamlining the apprenticeship process and sort of trying to boost participation and they were actually looking at providing financial support reducing excessive paperwork associated with certification and the inspection and also just trying to simplify the inspection regime so perhaps you know in this new government we might see a bit more of that or, yeah so it does sound encouraging for apprenticeships. yeah I hope they do factor that into the work program and maybe something where they can accredit apprenticeships so that mm. when you go on to your next job you can see that it's got structure or certificate so you've not just been training on the job but you have yeah. a qualification of sorts through that route so I'm more recognized yeah 
Harriet, anything else make for you us? <laughs> <laughs> um, I am finishing with a story about now as 23% of IT professionals have said that underhand tactics are acceptable if you want to land your dream job. Um, <laughs> Those IT What I particularly love about it is that they've qualified this by saying underhand tactics are acceptable as long as they didn't hurt anyone. Um, I was trying to think of the worst thing that I've done in order to get a job. And I couldn't think of anything personally. <laughs> oh, not that I'm going to admit to you anyway. Oh, and, um, <laughs> but I, my cousin did once go for a job and it was for a producer role and he needed some very specialist skills. He needed to know about a particular computer program. And he went in there and said that he'd done a year's training course on it and he'd been working in the industry for two years. He knew everything there was about it. He was an absolute professional and they should hire him. They hired him. And in the month before he started, he had to go on an intensive training course to learn this computer program inside out in order so that when he turned up, they wouldn't fire him on his first day. He's still there five years later. (laughs) So that's brilliant. Prep is the key. Yeah, like you said about the research, do you research? Yes, good story. (laughs) It seems Julian has also been taking note of this week's top job story. As recruitment budgets drop, staff workloads often increase, so he has got some advice on how to cope with an ever-expanding to-do list. At some point in all of our careers, there's going to come a time when there's a rush of work on. My advice really is that certainly at the very beginning, you can't do anything but be willing to accept more work. It can be a really great opportunity actually to extend your skills, to push your career on, to learn more and to impress your boss. I think so often our instant reaction to more work is, oh, don't do that, you know, oh God, I'm not paid to do that, is to be angry and kind of put out about it. I'd be more inclined to see it as an opportunity because really, if you don't do it, no one else is going to do it and therefore your business will suffer. So if you are struggling with your workload, really look at the way that you're working. Every morning and every evening, I write and update my list of things to do that day. And being organised will really help you to create a framework for your working day. Once you've got a tick list of things to do, I think you're less inclined to panic and do nothing because that happens quite a lot. You see people that just in the workplace all the time that feel so overwhelmed that all of a sudden it's just like, I'm just going to go on Facebook and chill out for five minutes. That's not really the right thing to do. Creating a plan for your day gives you some structure it helps you to be more efficient and therefore manage your workload. And I think if you're doing that and your workload is still overwhelming, that's when, you know, really alarm bells should be ringing and it's time to talk to your manager. If you want something to change, you've got to be prepared for this meeting. You have to have the evidence that justifies why you should work less or be paid more. That was Creative Director at Bauer, Julian Lindley, saying, watch your workload. Now, how could we forget Harriet's reading from last week's pod about the raunchy picture that spiced up a presentation she gave to a crowd of students while at university? For anyone who was looking to pep up their presentations without resorting to soft porn, we ran a live Q&A on improving your presentation skills and Ali has picked out some of the highlights from the discussion. Okay, Ali, uh, far away, what bits have you picked out? It's something that I've never done and I really should have. Get someone to video you while you're doing a presentation. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds 
terrifying. Oh, well, I was offered the opportunity at university. I really should have taken it up for a mock interview. But it's very interesting what the panel said because they were like, watch yourself, be nervous, and then you'll know what you're doing and try and fix it. But then you can also see what you like about yourself and try and enhance that. Mm. But someone did make me laugh because they said, you know, some people sit and watch their videos and think they're too bored to watch their own presentation. And they're just like <laughs> head so in boring, hand. Yeah. <laughs> but they said, you know, they can then go and make wonderful improvements on it. So I felt that was very interesting. Yeah, definitely. And the second thing is that, you know, a few people came into the discussion to say they, you know, they hate public speaking. They make them mm, nervous. They yeah. feel sick. So um, there's some great advice to go on public speaking courses. Um, people have found they've really been helped by it. One panelist saying he went to um, a 12-week course, which did he delivered two or three talks a week. And he after that, he became a speaker and stand-up comic. And he said that sort of positive, supportive feeling of the class stayed with him for the next 15 years. So it seems like it can really help people. At the same time, if you're worried something's going to go wrong, it's not the end of the world because another panellist, they knew a trainer who was building up their career and they said they didn't, she never felt like she was making contact with the audience. Mm. And one time she was giving a presentation and she went to sit down on a bar stool and actually fell off and apparently <gasps> mortified. <laughs> Poor thing. Um, but she said the feedback from that presentation was the best she'd ever got. <laughs> and I think... Because um, it was memorable. Well, that's it. And the panellist said it sort of took that kind of professional edge off and made you a bit more human I think or mm. expert edge mm. I think they called it I think at that point you think there can be nothing else <laughs> no. which can go wrong now so. yeah <laughs> let's relax it. a bit and last of all really is um the panel asked about humor should you try and make your presentation funny they said there's some sort of danger around it it can be a real presentation killer if your jokes don't really work out or you know you don't want to offend someone so you know unless you're very comfortable with it perhaps leave it out or just wait till it comes naturally mm. you know don't force it was their advice yeah no scripted gags allowed yeah. nobody <laughs> wants to be the David Brent of the presentation <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to recommend a resource actually there's a blog online called Presentation Zen yeah. and this is a guy that speaks a lot publicly and I had to give a presentation recently and I went on there read some of his tips looked at some of the presentations by people who are you know top of their game and yeah. it was really useful it's like they pick out people like Steve Jobs who has that sort of human really likable yes. approach and and it's really good resource for presentations I thought oh that's a good tip alright thanks very much Ali no problem We open the show with the not-so-good news regarding George Osborne's announcement of a hiring freeze in the civil service. Until April 2011, the freeze will apply across all government departments, agencies and quangos. Critical frontline appointments will be allowed, but most will have to be approved by the Secretary of State. Joining us now to talk about the freeze and the impact it will have on the sector and its workforce is Dr Fiona Robson. Senior Lecturer in Human Resources Management at Newcastle Business School, Northumbria University. Prior to her academic career, Fiona was the HR manager for a public sector organisation. As Fiona is up in Northumberland, we have her on the phone. Hello, Fiona. Hello. Thanks for having a chat with us today. Um, Can we just start off and you can tell us about your thoughts on the announcement? I think to some extent um, the cuts weren't unexpected mm. um, as we knew that there was going to have to be a lot of money saved. Yeah. I think the extent of the cuts probably took us a little bit by surprise but there's still quite a few um, answers that we're waiting for in terms of defining what will count for these critical um, business positions and really what the key frontline posts are yeah. so that we're much clearer about um, what will be acceptable. 
Okay, so what impact do you think the freeze is going to have on existing staff and their attitudes towards their jobs and, and their workloads and, and also those people who perhaps wanted to enter the sector but not, might not find it so easy now? I think the logical answer would be that the fear of cost cutting might decrease motivation and job mm. satisfaction. But in terms of research, the jury's still really out on that. And I think a lot of staff might see this as a wake-up call and will really make that effort to either maintain how productive they are or even to increase it so that they can demonstrate that they do add value to the organisation and they should be kept if there are any further cuts. Oh, that's fascinating. So not demotivating them, having the opposite effect. I mean, there there will be some people who are demotivated. And I think part of what the um, managers will need to do is very clearly communicate to staff what the issues are and what's going to happen to reduce some of that uncertainty, which will take away some of the anxiety. They may also find that in the short-term levels of absence decrease, where people perhaps may come to work, where in the past they may have made a borderline decision not to go in, so that they can attend work wherever possible. But I do think that the line managers will play a really important role in terms of motivating staff, keeping them in touch with what's going on, particularly with there'll be a lot of stories in the media and helping them to understand what the positions really are. Yeah. And well, what about those um, who may want to be moving into the sector? You know, is the civil service going to have problems now attracting talent because they might be a little uneasy about the security of the sector? Yeah, I think there is a danger that potential job seekers will be put off applying for positions because of the job security issue. So therefore, it's really important that the government do clarify what the situation is so people have that clear understanding of what sort of jobs will be available. They may need to also consider how they market any new jobs so that they do attract the talent pool and making sure that they attract appropriate people to that talent pool. So really being very clear about what the job entails and what the benefits are still working um, in terms of public sector. I think the other important thing to remember is, though, that the civil service actually only accounts for 10% of public sector employees. So if people are interested in working for the public sector, there are still many opportunities out there, for example, in local government. So perhaps doing some more research on the other opportunities um, might be useful for job seekers. Well, you just preempted my uh, my final question, actually. I was going to ask you about alternative options. It, you know, is it wise for people to, like you say, look elsewhere in the public sector or are there more private sector options available, open to people with that sort of skills and knowledge base? I think a lot of it is down to awareness, and particularly if people have worked in the public sector before, they may have a preference to return there. But I think that it would be about looking um, much more widely, finding out what different organisations do and really thinking about transferable skills and thinking, you know, do they really need to work in the public sector or are there private sector equivalents that might also be suitable for what they're looking for? Okay, well, thank you, Fiona. That was really interesting, those insights. And I think this is a story we're all going to be keeping our eye on. So maybe we'll give you a call again sometime to explore it more. Great, thank you. Now, to talk about the workforce's reaction to these cuts, we have Fiona's colleague Jane Turner, who is an Associate Dean of the Executive Development Centre at Newcastle Business School, Northumbria University. Jane has immense practical experience working with public sector organisations. Hello, Jane. Hello. Um, Thanks for speaking to us today. I just wanted to start off and ask you what your thoughts were on the announcement. And what would you say is the feeling among the sector towards the recruitment freeze? 
I think because people were expecting it, I think there's a, an element of uh, they resigned. And I think people are starting to talk around and realize actually what's, what does this mean for me now. But a lot of our clients have actually been restructuring prior to this actually being announced. So there's been a lot of churn, I think a lot of change, and looking at how they can become more efficient and more focused in relation to what they're doing. So there's been some activity in anticipation of this. Yeah, well, when I was just speaking to Fiona, she had some interesting thoughts on actually how this could motivate staff to, you know, how they feel about their jobs, like protecting their jobs really by sort of taking it more seriously, being proud of their work and that sort of stuff. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, if, I think there are lots of lessons for us to learn here, or for the, the public sector to learn from the private sector. There were lots of innovative elements came out as a result of what they were facing 18 months to two years ago. So I think there are lessons can be learned then. If we look at um, the CBI, I've just produced their report um, for May, and actually was, there was a recruitment fr- freeze. It was about 60% of organizations a year ago were not recruiting. That had re- reduced to six months ago to around 37%, and now it's quoted as being 5%. Okay. I still have a recruitment freeze. So they've gone through that process. There will have been lessons learned. So I think there's, there's some learning to be gained from the um, private sector in relation to this as well. But uh, absolutely an opportunity to energize and engage staff and listening to them to determine actually how do we respond to this? How do we make sense of it? And getting people to really have a voice and articulate what they think they could be doing and what they should be spending their time on in relation to being more efficient, more effective in relation to the stuff that actually is probably a distraction and not particularly relevant. But all of that depends very much on how they're led and managed in relation to this process. Yeah, there has been a lot of debate, sort of support for public sector managers to get through this. But I think that's really interesting, actually, giving the employees a voice and sort of joining forces with them to make sure it is a smoother transition. What issues do you think staff should be aware of um, or be prepared for? The anxiety in relation to this is that the minute this was announced that some of your top talent who are more likely to move on and get other jobs might be leaving the organisation and and moving on. That therefore leaves potentially people who, and I will be quite confrontational in this, or quite often the lower performers are left in the organisation. It's just to what element have you got an engaged workforce left as a result of this um, this impact and this decision. So staff need taken care of here. Their engagement, their motivation is absolutely crucial and it can be quite a stressful time. So I think individuals need to be just focusing in on themselves and, help, and making sense of what does this mean for me. But again, going back to the comment I've just made, if you get the top talent energized and engaged around this agenda, then that's going to bring real energy into the organization. And there are some real positives that can come from this. So it's how we keep a positive, hopeful, optimistic workforce during this time. But that goes again back to the role models in the organisation and they are the leaders and the managers. Frontline services have been ruled out of the freeze, supposedly. But, you know, what counts as a frontline service? And this, will this sort of change in different services, different organisations? Well, if you look at the civil service statistics, seven in ten people work in frontline posts. So then if you look at the remaining percentage that are, are going to be impacted on this, you just wonder to how, how feasible this actually is. Mm. But there are also real efficiencies to be had, I'm sure, in frontline posts as well. So that's a potential dilemma here. If we just focus on the support roles, the impact that that could have and, and levels of resentment that that could have. Mm. Um, and I'm sure, again, it goes back to talking to the staff in the frontline positions. What do they think could be done more efficiently and more effectively? I think engagement is crucial 
during this period and hanging on to the talent. And I think this is quite a soft option to put in place a recruitment freeze. And actually where the real value could be leveraged here is actually empowering individuals to determine, and it comes back to having this voice around where is the slack in the system, where is the waste, the inefficiency, what could we be doing better? And I'm not sure that... I can see why the coalition never made this announcement, but I'm not sure really longer term the actual benefits that we will see as a result of this because you could lose your top talent. You could be left with people who are disengaged, um, demotivated, and I'm just not sure what the longer term benefits would be. Some challenging times ahead, I guess. Absolutely. absolutely. Thank you so much for talking to us today. I hope we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks again to Dr Fiona Robson and Jane Turner on their insights on the future of the civil service. Harriet, what did you think of that? I thought they both had really interesting points. Uh, What I was quite surprised about was that there wasn't any outrage on behalf of the public service. There was no shouting about protecting jobs. In fact, I think both of them almost felt that the government hadn't gone far enough and they were expecting actual cuts rather than just a recruitment freeze. I was surprised that they seem to feel actually there are massive efficiencies which could be made within the public sector and that maybe not everyone within it is working to the best of their ability at the moment. Yeah, efficiency is a big buzzword in public sector at the moment. So I think we're going to hear more about that as this story rolls on. On to the rant room now. You may remember a couple of pods ago we had graduate career champion and founder of graduatefog.co.uk, Tanya de Grunwald, in the studio to discuss whether the widespread minimum requirement of a 2-1 grade for graduate jobs should be scrapped. Well, the debate didn't end there and our graduate careers advice expert, Rob Cross, who you might also remember from a previous pod, penned a blog post for us on this issue, offering some advice for those who find themselves missing the grade, and we've had some interesting rants in response. This probably isn't going to go down too well, but frankly, having recently graduated from university, getting a 2-1 is not difficult. Anyone who goes to uni knows that getting a 2-1 is important. If they don't achieve it, then they probably fall into one of two categories. A. They were intelligent enough but didn't do sufficient work to achieve what is essentially an extremely achievable target, or to put it another way, they didn't get the work-play balance right, or B, they weren't intelligent enough to get the grades. I accept that there's probably a third category, namely C, extenuating circumstances out of their control. Now although different jobs have different requirements, there are certain generic requirements that all employers look for. Surely graduates who can achieve targets A and graduates who are bright or educated, in other words B, are representative of these generic requirements. I think what needs changing is the whole grading system at universities. A. There's a massive difference between a high 2-1 and a low 2-1, yet a minute difference between a high 2-2 and a low 2-1. B. The standard of work required to achieve a 2-1 varies dramatically between universities. Unlike A-levels, a degree is not a nationally standardised qualification. Even attitudes towards the exams differ. One of my friends from one university had only two exams in the final year. The majority of the grade came from pre-marked coursework. And one of these exams she had access to the question paper 48 hours prior to the exam. Employers need to take these factors into consideration before using subjective exam grades as a deciding factor. 
The job adverts that bother me are the ones which require a minimum 2-1 from any UK university. Theoretically, a candidate with a 2-1 degree from a university outside the top 100 could be favoured over somebody with a 2-2 from a top 10 university. Another disparity is between the marking in arts and science degrees. Due to the subjective nature of marking in arts subjects, students tend to get roughly one class lower than sciences students, where there are more definite answers. Jimmy231, LJS101 and Paolo Scolsino sharing their thoughts on employers demanding a minimum of a 2-1 from new recruits. If you are currently looking for a new job, there's lots of prospect for change in this week's Jobs Top 10. We have Charlie Frame from Guardian Jobs here to help Ali reveal the chart. In at 10 is an opportunity for some sun and sangria. The British Embassy in Spain is looking for a corporate services manager. And Brighton and Hove City Council is looking for an occupational therapist at nine. While in at eight is another chance to broaden your horizons. Recruitment agency PFJ is looking for a group planning director to relocate to Dubai. It's a senior product manager for the BBC at seven. And at six, English Heritage is after a head of visitor operations for Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. Entering the countdown at five, the University of Southern Australia is looking for a senior lecturer in communication. While four goes to Red Sea Consultancy. The company is looking for a head of philanthropy. At three, a student life administrator is needed to bring some organisation to the University of New York in London. And just missing out on the top spot, at two, the music market is looking for a PA to join its HR team. And top of the jobs is a development director post at Sydney Sussex College, Cambridge. You'll be leading the college's new 2020 campaign to raise more than £20 million over the next 10 years for development work. If you want to apply or find out more about these jobs, pop along to guardianjobs.co.uk. Before we go, let's have a quick look at the Q&As coming up next week. Harriet, what have we got? Next week, we have got your chance to question last year's Guardian Student Media Awards winner. And that's on the 2nd of June, between 1 and 4 p.m. On 3rd of June, we're looking at careers in B2B journalism. And on the 7th of June, we're looking at career paths in the housing sector. That brings us to the end of the show. Thanks very much to our guests, Dr. Fiona Robson, Jane Turner, Julian Lindley, Charlie Frame from Guardian Jobs, and of course, Alison White and Harriet Minter. I'm Kerry Eustace. Careers Talk was produced by Kate Taylor. Until next week, goodbye.